Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. I don't know about you, but I enjoy watching the occasional detective show on TV or online. And a feature in almost all of them that I've watched is forensic analysis of evidence, with detectives eagerly awaiting the results of a forensic report to help solve a mystery. Without perhaps the same degree of suspense, this kind of forensic analysis can take place in archives to help determine authenticity around items in a collection. Recently, the Mary Baker Eddy Library engaged a forensic document examiner to conduct handwriting analysis on entries in the diaries of Calvin Fry, the longtime personal secretary of Mary Baker Eddy. These particular entries have been subject to questioning over the years, stimulating speculation as to their origin, authenticity, and the actual identity of their author. At issue were key considerations around how to understand Eddie's history of self-care around incidents of extreme physical pain. Forensic science could help in illuminating some of the contested claims around these entries. So, in March 2021, Cody Detweiler of Lesnovich and Detweiler, forensic document examiners, came to the Mary Baker Eddy Library to examine the documents in question. In this episode, we will learn about what Cody discovered and the processes he used to come to his conclusions. Welcome, Cody. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, and it's going to be a treat and an adventure to learn about what you did for the library. But first, we are going to learn from Mike Hamilton, executive manager of the Mary Baker Eddy Library, and Judy Hunnicky, senior research archivist at the library, about the background on these documents and why it was important to engage Cody's services. Welcome, Mike and Judy. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. Glad to be here. So, Judy, why have there been these controversies around authenticity in the Calvin Fry diaries? What exactly are these diaries? They're small books in which Calvin Fry documents numerous aspects of his life as a worker in Mary Baker Eddy's household. They contain entries on highly personal subjects, as well as documenting such things as housework and financial expenditures. Since most of the entries are dated, of course, they are a great way to get a handle on Eddie's and Fry's lives and work. So Calvin Fry lived from 1845 to 1917, Mm -hmm. and he was a Christian scientist who first had class instruction with Eddie in October 1881. The very next year, he became a part of Eddie's household, working for her from 1882 until her passing in 1910. Fry himself passed away seven years later in 1917. So when we start talking about this concept of authenticity and the question of why has the authenticity of these diary entries been challenged, this is quite a big question. But why don't we start by first talking about what we mean by authenticity? It's not examining statements for accuracy. It's more about looking at the document as a document. So when we're talking about authenticity, we want to ensure such things as, was the document created by the person identified as its author? Mm. Was the document created at the date given to it? 
or does it appear to date from another time entirely? And then another concept is what is often called provenance. And this is simply, where did the document come from? So why has the diary's authenticity been challenged? Well, there are actually a number of reasons. There's this hypothesis that has been mostly advanced by individuals who have never examined the original documents, that the entries regarding doctors' visits are forgeries added to the diaries to provide evidence that Mary Baker Eddy took drugs and utilized doctors to cure ailments. And then there is this problem, as I mentioned before, of provenance. Many of the diaries went through a number of hands before they became part of the library's collections, thus providing the possibility that alteration or forgery could take place. So we knew that alteration was possible because of these provenance issues. Most of these diaries did not come directly from Fry to the Mother Church. They came through members of the Fry family and also through an individual named John Didimore. In fact, we know that most of the diaries went through John V. Didimore's hands at some point. Judy, tell us about John Didimore. Who was he, and why did he have these diaries? He was a member of the church's governing board, the Christian Science Board of Directors, mm. and he became deeply involved with the acquisition of historic documents. Later, however, he was dismissed from the board of directors and then filed a lawsuit, a complaint, against the directors regarding this dismissal, right. a lawsuit that he ultimately lost. We also know that Didymore himself admitted to making some alterations to the diaries. He made some erasures, tore out pages, photostatted them, and later had the original pages destroyed. Judy, thank you very much for that summary about Calvin Fry and the history of his diaries. From what you're saying, I can well imagine why people would have questions around the integrity of these documents considering their handling or, or their mishandling, if you will. So, Mike, with all of that in mind, what was key for you to have addressed by this analysis, this handwriting analysis, that Cody Detweiler would be performing for the library? I think one thing that was very important to us was that because there had been questions around the diaries, there were also questions around Mary Baker Eddy's own adherence to her own teachings and mm. the uh, validity of her life work. And, of course, we want to know as much of the truth about that as we can and not to predetermine any outcomes. But it seemed clear that some assertions had been made about Mrs. Eddy and about her life, uh, really not based on evidence, but right. based on bits and pieces. And that includes assertions made both by critical biographers who at times pictured her as a uh, drug addict, uh, among other things, and then also among some of her followers who were not able to come to grips with the idea that she had ever used morphine, which was prescribed as an anesthetic. Fry's diaries recorded that she had used morphine on several occasions for relief from extreme pain as an analgesic, if you will. 
Mm-hmm. Morphine was a commonly prescribed anesthetic and analgesic at that time, as well as a, an ingredient in many non-prescription medicines that were uh, used by many people at that period. So we wanted to see if we could get closer to the real story. Right. Um, and the idea behind getting to that story, of course, is that it then allows researchers to do their own thinking about Mary Baker Eddy and reach their own conclusions, but based on evidence, not just on hearsay, rumor, and inaccuracies that have been repeated down through the decades. So, Cody, what was the main question that you were going to hopefully help us resolve? Well, Jonathan, when I first took this case on, we had several calls back and forth that kind of discussed the the parameters of the analysis. And the main question that I was asked to focus on was, whether or not the Fry diaries were actually written by Calvin Fry, or whether there were entries within those diaries that were written by somebody else. Specifically, I was asked to look at writings by John Dittmore to see whether or not he was a potential donor to the writing itself. I see. So you have this assignment. You come to the Mary Baker Eddy Library. What did you need to do in order to answer this question, this key question, in the best possible way? So to take one step back, the benefit that I had as an independent forensic expert, when I came into this particular case, I had no background information with regard to why these were at issue. I was just directed toward 26 different entries. So again, from a forensic standpoint, that's beneficial because, again, we're not biased. We don't have the biasing information about particulars or stories or anything like that. So When I came in to the case and came on site, I treated this just like any other handwriting comparison that we would typically do in any other case. And that would start with uh, looking at known writings uh, for both Calvin Fry and John Dittmore. So the first step that I did was I looked at the known writings and I looked at the question writings for Calvin Fry. I compared those and then while I was on site, I was able to obtain known writings for John Dittmore, which I think also compared against the questioned entries. So that was the first step in really addressing the question that I had in this case as to which one of the two individuals, if either of them, wrote the text at issue. So what did you discover? Based upon my analysis, it was quite clear quite quickly. And the reason why it became so apparent so quickly is because everything was in agreement with Calvin Frost's handwriting. Mm -hmm. All the different letter formations, letter features, height relationships, slant, baseline alignment, all the different characteristics that we look for, everything was in agreement. On the contrary, when I looked at John Dittmore's known writings and I compared that against the question text, it seemed like nothing fit. Nothing was in agreement. Different letter formations, height relationships, slants, spacing, all these different features were completely dissimilar when I compared the text for him. So the picture began to emerge very quickly just by looking at the known writings of these two and comparing it against the question text. Yeah, so that makes sense. But what about the idea that Dittmore could have forged, could have replicated, if he knew what Fry's handwriting looked like, could he have mimicked it? How did you clarify uh, a question around the potential of forgery? Sure. So to eliminate the possibility of simulation, where he would have had a genuine model or genuine models of, of Fry's handwriting, which we, we know that he did, um, there's a couple of factors that you look at. So first of all, for a case like this, 
that means that John Dittmore would have had to essentially suppress all of his own handwriting habits and characteristics mm -hmm. and really try to adopt those of Calvin Fry. Right. And not only how Calvin Fry would write a particular letter form, but all the variations of that form. So, for example, a lowercase a, the known writings of Calvin Fry, may be written two or three different ways or th two or three different variations. So not only would John Dittmore have to know how one of those variations looked, he would also have to know how the other two looked, and then he would have to know how to incorporate those naturally and spontaneously throughout extended writings, which would be very difficult in and of itself. But really the dead giveaway is the fact that we had original writings to look at, and there was no sign of stimulation. There were no uh, slow writing movements. These were all naturally, spontaneously written entries. So the letter form showed differences in pressure, even though they were pencil writings, you could see the thickness of the line. If this was somebody simulating the writing, they would have to draw it. So yes, you can simulate writing and make it look like the genuine writing of so-and-so, but in the process of doing that, you have to slow down and have to draw the letter formations to get that pictorial similarity. Mm. And whenever you look at the original text, that's when you can tell the difference between a slow drawing, a simulation, and a naturally written, spontaneously executed writing. It's fascinating. So something can look similar to something else, but the way that it was composed is going to be very different from how the other writing that it looks like was composed. That's correct. And, and oftentimes what you're going to see is, again, that slow drawn effect. Right. Uh, and the line quality, it's just going to appear drawn versus a nice, smooth, natural, free-flowing writing movement. So again, you're going to have the differences in pressure the differences in the thickness of the strokes. And one of the interesting things about this case is you're dealing with a time before you have ballpoint pens and you have you know, Sharpies and things like that. So people, when they weren't writing with pencil, they were often writing with a fountain pen, which would actually show a lot of these different characteristics, shading, differences in pressure, and how strokes were formed. So again, there is a big emphasis on how letters were formed, especially during this time period, compared to something like now. So again, at the end of the day, you're still looking for, is this naturally written, or is this a slow, deliberate drawing of, of someone else's writing? Yeah. So this is great, Cody, to understand that because we have this volume of known writings of Calvin Fry and this volume of known writings of John Didymore with which to compare these entries, that for you, it pointed clearly, definitively, that they were in none other than the hand of Calvin Fry. And this, I think, is significant because we know Calvin Fry's biography. We know that he was a devoted and conscientious assistant of Mary Baker Eddy. So that influences perspective on these entries. But what I'm wondering also is from a forensic scientific point of view, if there were any other considerations that may have surfaced for you beyond these comparisons between the diary entries and the known writings of John Didymore and Calvin Fry. When I was examining the questioned entries, I did notice that some entries contain the presence of what we call erasures or mm. erased entries. And then I also found uh, remnants in the binding of several of the diaries where you could see where pages were tore out. Right. So I, I did ask a few questions. And, and again, I, I knew about photostats being provided in place of some of the pages, uh, but it didn't account for all the pages that were tore out. So obviously we made note of those particular locations where pages were missing. We made 
uh, specific uh, notations where erasures actually occurred. So uh, I used a, a variety of different lighting techniques and photography techniques to see if I can enhance any of the uh, erased entries to see whether or not there was any way we could decipher any of the text that would have been originally written. Mm -hmm. So again, this was a non-destructive approach, and I decided that that was likely the best approach in a case like this, just due to the sensitivity of the documents, how important they are to the library. They're, they're essentially irreplaceable artifacts. Right. So you have to be very, very careful and cognizant of that fact. Uh, so again, that's the reason why we decided to do lighting techniques, photography, completely non-destructive. Through those different types of exams that we did, I was able to determine several of the entries that were actually erased. I was able to actually decipher some of the erased text, some letters, some entries we could get the entire entry, some entries we could only get partial entries, things like that. So we were able to actually look at some of those different things non-destructively to kind of shed some more light on what may have been written or what could have been written in some of these blank pages. But again, there were other tests that, that could be done uh, in the future if the, the diaries could theoretically be uh, removed or pages removed to be able to do those tests separately. Again, just because of the nature of the sensitivity being on site, uh, non-destructive methods were the only thing used in this particular case. So the diaries were in the same condition after you examined them as they were beforehand? Absolutely, yeah. That was one of the main concerns, not only for myself, but I'm sure I can speak for the staff at the library, was <laughs> that these diaries need to be returned in the same exact condition that they were examined. So oh, we certainly great. did that. Yeah, that's great. Cody, I'm sure some of our listeners would be wondering the same thing. Does analyzing a photostatted page require different kinds of examination techniques than examining original manuscript pages? Um, it doesn't necessarily involve different techniques. There's certainly limitations with examining a photostat page versus an original page in an entry. Specifically, you can't look at a variety of things. So if you had something that appears to be erased on a photostat, oftentimes it's not possible to determine if it was definitively an erasure or if it was part of the, the reproduction process itself. So you do have limitations in, in the evidence itself at that point. But again, as far as the handwriting that would appear on a photostat, you would compare it just like you would any other handwriting comparison, whether it be original or a photocopy. So again, you're still looking at letter formations, uh, connecting strokes, terminal strokes, beginning strokes, things like that to make a determination of authorship. So the short answer is not necessarily, uh, but there are, are certainly some limitations that you have to take into consideration when dealing with non-original documents or evidence. One of the things in this case that made that particular part of the analysis easy is the fact that we had original writings. We had access to the original diaries on site and original known writings. So if you have photo stats, sometimes those particular features, depending upon the quality of a reproduction, you, you just can't evaluate. If you think of your signature on a letter and then you make 50 copies one after another of that signature, you're not going to pick up differences in pressure. You'll get the pictorial aspect, but you're not going to really be able to look at the line quality characteristics. And that's why being able to be on site with the original evidence for essentially the entire week, I think that that would have been a huge limitation had we not been able to actually look at the original evidence in a case like this. In the standard guide for the examination of handwritten items, one of the main factors is whether or not you have original evidence. So again, in this particular case, we had no limitations. So it really kind of eliminates the possibility of somebody coming in saying, 
well, they had copies, so you really can't eliminate that. No, we had the originals, and we could actually look at all the line quality characteristics, as well as pictorial formation. Mike and Judy, when you got Cody's findings, what were your thoughts? What did it deliver for you in terms of thinking about this collection? This analysis gave us a basis for being able to understand who the author was of passages that had perhaps been contested, and then to be able to think about uh, why he wrote what he wrote. And there's, of course, a, a lot to be thought about and examined there. Well, I'm very grateful to say that Cody's expert analysis tells us that these entries are in Calvin Fry's handwriting. Right. But as we're saying, this is probably just the beginning of much deeper historical research that needs to be done, I think, to provide what I would call more historical context for all of these entries. Uh, One of the great ways that we're providing more historical context is through the Mary Baker Eddy Papers Project. Right. And so as the Papers Project gets closer to the time period when these entries were written, we're going to have more correspondence easily available and readable that will tell us more about what was going on with Eddie and with other members of her household during this time period. What is the time period in in question? The time period in question is mainly 1903 to 1910. Uh, It's important to note that this part of Mary Baker Eddy's history is something that biographers have dealt with. Mm. And probably the first real instant of a, a documented assessment of Mary Baker Eddy's uh, occasional use of uh, morphine as an anesthetic in cases of extreme pain was in 1977 in Robert Peel's third and final installment of his biography, Mary Baker Eddy, The Years of Authority, where he devoted a good deal of space to not just what happened, but why and what its significance was. Judy mentioned context. These entries, while very important, are just a very small part of the overall content of the diaries. And understanding them better is valuable, but what we hope to promote is a desire on the part of some of our patrons to understand the diaries as a whole and to uh, look at them more carefully. They're just a treasure trove of big and small things, as Judy described, Mary Baker Eddy was notable for her incredible productivity and uh, all that she accomplished over many years. But it's also clear that what she accomplished, much of it was done with the really remarkable and stalwart aid of many people, including Calvin Fry, who really stood by her for almost three decades His diaries, of course, can't tell us everything about that, but I think they tell us a great deal about how seriously he took his task, how multifaceted was his role, and his own honesty and matter-of-factness about different challenging subjects, even if they're just represented in a brief notation, uh, is going to be a great help in preserving an accurate history of uh, the earliest days of Christian science. So, Cody, listening to all this conversation among the library staff around the Fry Diaries and the value of your contribution through the forensic scientific analysis that you performed, 
What do you think of this assignment? How does it stand out to you in your career? From the assignment itself, it's very much just like any other case that we would get. Okay. In terms of the analysis. In terms of the overall project and kind of the bird's eye view of what it means, uh, it's certainly one of my favorite cases that I've had the, the opportunity to work on. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, just because of everything that went into it. And, and the benefit, too, like I said, when I took this this matter on, I really didn't have the understanding that I did after I was getting the report completed and how all the pieces kind of fit together and why it was such a big issue. Quite honestly, that's what I would prefer. I really didn't want to know a lot of the background details, just enough to be able to do the case and to address the certain issues I was asked to do. Again, I don't want any biasing information to come in. But again, with that being said, now whenever I can take a step back, listen to Mike and Judy talk about the importance of the report and, and the issues that have gone into uh, getting to this point, it, it certainly makes sense <laughs> right. uh, from a broad standpoint of, of why I was asked to do it. The historical context and, and looking at the types of documents we were able to look at, having access to originals, this case itself is certainly a special case and it's a little bit different just in terms of, of how it was worked and what was available at the time and, and uh, everything that went into it. Oh, that's great. Mike, you and Judy and others have been hard at work thinking about Cody's examination for an article that perhaps is going to be helpful to our listeners in really reviewing this whole question of the Fry Diaries and their significance and the questions that have emerged over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about what listeners might find in that article? Well, we hope that this article will be a very helpful introduction to this matter to anyone who's interested in it. It's set up in a question-and-answer format okay. because there are so many moving parts, so to speak, in uh, this whole situation. And so going to it, we hope that readers will find many of their questions answered. And if other questions are raised uh, by this article, we invite readers to write to us to ask research questions that we hope that we can help them to answer. That's great. I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity to talk to all of you about this really fascinating case. So thank you so much, Cody, for spending some time with us and describing the work you did for the Mary Baker Eddy Library. And it's really been great having this time with you. Thank you, Jonathan. And, and thank you, Judy and, and Michael, for having me today. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much, Judy, for giving us some background. If there's anyone who uh, can speak to what we have in our collections, it is certainly you. You've, you've been working with them for a long time. So it's always a wonderful opportunity to be able to uh, learn from you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. But I realize after hearing Cody talk and seeing the results of his research, how much more there is to learn. And thank you so much, Mike, for your comments and for your thoughtful analysis of what Cody's work has, has meant for the library, but also giving us a sense of that bigger picture that it's uh, contributing to. Thanks a lot, Jonathan. It was great to plunge into the world of forensic document analysis in this episode of Seekers and Scholars, and in so doing, learn about another fascinating dimension of archival practice. We're so glad you could be with us for this discussion. And we invite you to look at the related article that we mentioned during the episode. It's on the library's website. It's called A Forensic Analysis of Calvin Fry's Diaries. It's part of our From the Collection series. So I think you'll find that a valuable complement to what you just heard. Also, 
a little heads up about a survey that we will be offering to listeners during upcoming episodes. We'd love it if you could just take a couple of minutes to answer some questions to give us uh, some ideas about your thoughts on the podcast and your interests. So look for that during our November and December episodes. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode when we explore the Mary Baker Eddy Library Oral History Project. You'll get to know about the stories and voices that we are collecting as part of that initiative. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2021.